Well, I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We are in week three of our four-week series looking at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapters one and two. Really quickly, I want to say thank you to all the people who contributed to the giving tree out in the lobby. Uh, whatever family that is that is getting those gifts, we are incredibly blessed that we had all these people come forward and take time out of their days and take money out of their pockets and choose to bless this family. So just thank you to everyone who contributed to that. And I'm sure that family is going to experience God's blessing this Christmas the way they never have before. So thank you again for that. I also want to say thank you to the Kid City Kids who are in here right now. They did a really, really great job with the song. But one thing I do want to mention is when they came in, they were passing out cards. And hopefully each of you got a card. Maybe each family got a card if we didn't have enough for every single person. But those cards are not just so that you can look at them and think they're pretty and think they're cute and marvel over how well they colored in the lines, although you can do all those things. Those cards, even bigger than that, we would like you to take that card home and inside that card should be the name of a child who made the card. And over the next 10 days, we would like you to pray for that child. Pray that that child will remember Christ at the center of Christmas. As they look forward to school being over, as they look forward to sleeping in, as they are hoping for one more snow day during this last week of school, as they look forward to presents and Santa and all those things that come with Christmas, we want you to pray for them, that they will remember Christ at the center of all of it. So that's what those cards are for. Put them on your fridge, put them on your nightstand, stick it in your Bible, wherever you need to put it to remember those things. So. Last week, we talked a little bit about the characters we've introduced. We have introduced these main characters of the story in Luke chapter 1. The main characters are Zechariah and Elizabeth, this couple that seems to have everything going for them. They do everything right. They honor God. They obey God. They strive to please him in everything they say and in everything they do. But they can't have a child. And that makes them stick out a little bit. There's a little bit of a stigma for them because they don't have a child. But then Gabriel comes, an angel, and he tells them that God is going to bless them with a child. But this child is going to be something special. He's not just any kid. He's not just any baby. He's going to have a specific mission from God. And that child's name will be John. Elizabeth's relative, Mary, a young girl, probably in her early teens, around 14 years old. Not too long after Zechariah and Elizabeth received this message from Gabriel, Mary receives a message from Gabriel. Gabriel tells her that she too is going to be pregnant, even though she's a virgin. That she will give birth to the Son of God. And it might be awkward. It might be hard to explain to friends and family. It might be kind of a weird icebreaker at Christmas parties. But that's what's going to happen. And Mary is a little bit confused at first, but she says, Okay, you know what, God? Let it be to me according to your word. If this is how you want me to serve you, if this is how you've picked me to be a part of this that you're writing, then so be it. If it's awkward, if it's weird, if it's a little bit overwhelming, then so be it. Joseph has some doubts at first, too, but then he receives a message from God and he's on board. He seems to be okay with things. So both of them are pregnant. Mary and Elizabeth meet before the babies are born. And Elizabeth says that when Mary comes into the room, the baby inside of her womb is so excited that he leaps in the womb. Elizabeth exclaims that she's not worthy to be in the presence of the mother of her Lord. 
Both of these babies are special. Both of these babies are unique. Both of these babies will have incredible missions from God. But one of them will be even greater than the other. John is born just the way Gabriel said he would be. Zechariah and Elizabeth and their friends and their neighbors, they rejoice. They name him John, just like the angel told them to name him. And then we ask the question, you look at John's life. His life would be a life that revolved around making paths straight for the Lord. Getting people ready for the thing that's coming next. And that thing is Jesus, the baby just a few months younger than he is. We ask the question that, did John ever get bitter? Did John ever get jealous? Did John ever sit back and wish that he didn't have to live in Jesus' shadow all the time? Did he ever wish that maybe someone could be sent to make paths straight for him? That, yeah, his mission is great, but Jesus' mission is even greater. Did that ever become a problem for John? Scripture seems to indicate that, no, it didn't. In fact, John seemed to relish that role of taking people's eyes away from him and putting their eyes on Jesus instead. Even when some of John's own followers started leaving him to follow Jesus instead, John would say, he must become greater and I must become less. I pray that we can be the kind of people that, like John, we can humbly point people to Christ. When people's eyes are on us, they will naturally end up bouncing to Christ because of how we speak of him, because of the glory that we give him, because of how we honor him with our words and with our deeds. I pray that we'll be those kind of people. Now that brings us where we are today, Luke chapter 2, looking at the second half of the birth narrative of Jesus. So if you have a Bible with you, feel free to turn there, but I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into our text. Father God, thank you for the honor and the privilege that you give us to look at the birth of your son, Jesus. God, the past two weeks, the past two sermons have been looking forward to this moment, the moment that we've all been waiting for, the moment that Mary and Joseph have been waiting for, the moment when Jesus is born. And God, I pray over the next 10 days and well after that, that we can keep that in mind, that Christmas truly is about your son coming, that a savior came for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your word, the privilege we have to read it together this morning. I pray that we'll take it, that we'll think about it, we'll wrestle with it, and that we'll allow your word to pierce our hearts and pierce our minds, and that your Holy Spirit will work on us every single day to make us more like you. God, we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Feel free to grab a Bible from the chair underneath you or to your right, to your left. We'll have verses up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way as well. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave. So starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his town, own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So apparently there's a census happening. Luke says that Caesar Augustus wants to have a census. 
And so all the people are encouraged, or maybe even commanded, to return to their ancestral hometowns. The towns where their families truly have their roots. That way they can kind of do the census a little bit more efficiently. Maybe it's not quite so crazy trying to hunt down all these people. So all the people return to their hometowns. There is some debate about the dating of this census. Some people look at this and would say, now, wait a minute. This doesn't seem to have happened in archaeological evidence until a few years later. Did Luke get something wrong here? Well, I can get you more information about that, but the summary of it is that there are certain factors that Luke is considering as he writes. He's probably trying to write things in a way that is understandable to Theophilus, the man who is receiving this gospel. So Luke is dropping names like Quirinius to try and help Theophilus better understand when these things are happening and where these things are happening. So there's certainly debate to be had there, but the truth is this does not take away at all from the reliability or the accuracy of what Luke is writing. That's the main point. But either way, there's a census that is happening that Luke records. Joseph and Mary and their soon-to-be-born baby, they return to Bethlehem. Now, this would have been quite a journey for a pregnant woman. At the very least, if you go in a straight line, this is an 80-mile trip. On foot. And that's if you go in a straight line, going straight through some pretty hostile areas that you probably would have avoided if you were with your pregnant wife. But they eventually get to Bethlehem. It's probably a huge relief when they arrive. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the end. Now, really quickly, there are a couple things I'm going to mention here, and hopefully I will not shatter your Christmas. Hopefully I will not destroy your traditions. That's not what I'm trying to do. This does not mean you have to go and angrily knock your nativity scene off of the dining room table when you get home. Don't do any of that stuff. It's no big deal. But there are a few things we're going to look at here in this text that may not actually be in there that we kind of have developed on our own. A few traditions that we have ended up putting in on our own. The first one is this. Many of our cartoons and many of our shows will have Mary riding on the back of a donkey and she's leaning over her pregnant stomach because she's going into labor right when they enter into Bethlehem. Well, here's the thing. The timing probably wasn't that perfect. Luke says, while they were there, Mary went into labor to have this baby. That implies that they had probably been there for a little while. She didn't happen to go labor, go into labor right when they're coming into the gates of the town. But that is something that we kind of like to look at and kind of like to think about. It's no big deal if you want to go with that. Not a huge problem, but it simply isn't here in the text. Now we pick up in verse 7. She gives birth to this son. She wraps him in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Now, the debate around this verse comes with the whole question of was Jesus born in a stable or was he born somewhere else? Most of our nativity scenes say stable. There are horses there. Some themed nativity scenes will even have other crazy looking animals there, depending on what kind of nativity scene you want. But the truth is, what we see here is that Jesus is born in a manger, but there's debate about where it would be. Would an inn really be in Bethlehem? It's a pretty small town, 
very minor road, is Bethlehem really a city big enough to have an inn or a hotel the way we often picture it? The truth is, probably not. The word in this passage that is used for inn could probably be used a little bit better as room or side room or guest room, something like that. So the truth is that Mary and Joseph probably rode into town. Mary had the baby a few weeks or a few months in, and then there's no room in the family home. So Mary and Joseph have to go into a side room, a room where maybe the family keeps their animals at night. A room that maybe they keep their animals in when there's bad weather on the back side of the house. But here's the point. Whether you want to picture Mary in labor right when she rides into town, if you want to picture Jesus being born in a stable, the main point is that Jesus was born into extremely humble circumstances. Stable, back room, barn, wherever it was, debate can be had. But the debate can't be had that these are extremely humble and lowly beginnings for Jesus. He's a royal baby, yet he doesn't seem to be getting the royal treatment when it comes to where he's being born. It's not a very impressive nursery, no matter which way you choose to look at it, that Jesus is born in. Pick up in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This humble baby, royal baby, born into humble circumstances in a podunk town called Bethlehem, would spend his childhood in a not so much more impressive town of Nazareth. Nathaniel, later in John's gospel, would write that nothing good can come from Nazareth. These are very humble beginnings. And some of the first witnesses are very humble, lowly people. They're shepherds. Guys who are rough around the edges. Guys who probably don't smell that great. Guys who probably didn't clean up that well. Guys who probably use language a lot like sailors. Yet, these are the guys who will hear about Jesus. We get to verse 10. If you're a Kid City kid, you've probably memorized, hopefully memorized, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 in part of your classroom. So I'm going to read it. If you want to read it with me, feel free to do that. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Any Kid City kids out there? I thought there were. Either way, the whole idea is that these shepherds get a message from an angel. These lowly, unsuspecting guys. The angel tells them to go to Bethlehem because there is great joy coming into the world. Now, obviously, they're filled with great fear. Think about the emotions that are running through their minds. They're probably confused. They're probably scared. They're probably feeling privileged. They feel honored to have been a part of this proclamation. So what are they going to do? We see that the angel says that a savior has been born. Now, there's something interesting about that word savior. We hear it a lot in the church. We think we have a pretty good understanding of what it means and everything. But it wasn't the first time that people in the New Testament had used the word Savior. There were other men referred to as Savior. 
They were guys like Caesar. They were guys who were in charge. They were rulers. They were kings. There were some statues dedicated to Roman emperors that said they were God on earth. But here's the thing. Luke seems to indicate that there really is only one savior. And he's not sitting on a throne in Rome. He's lying in a manger. He's not wearing beautiful royal garments. Instead, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. This is the true savior. This is the true king. And even though the surroundings may say otherwise, don't be mistaken. This baby is very much a king. Pick back up in verse 12. The angel speaks to the shepherds. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Pick up in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Understatement of the century there, after what they had just seen. Verse 16. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told of them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Everything seems to go exactly according to plan. The shepherds find Jesus just the way the angel said they would. He is born just the way Gabriel said he would be. This seems like a lot of coincidence. Well, it's not coincidence. This is part of a bigger plan than any of these shepherds realize. It's part of a bigger plan than even Mary and Joseph realize. Bigger than Elizabeth and Zechariah realize. There's something going on here. They might not know the weight of all of it. They might not understand all of it. But it's part of a bigger plan that God had been writing long, long, long before Jesus was ever a twinkle in Mary's eye. Now, we look at this passage, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 21. And it's often the passage that people read on Christmas Eve. It's the famous birth story. But this birth story is referring to what is called the incarnation. That's the theological term, the incarnation. One of the most famous passages summing up the incarnation is seen in John chapter 1, verse 14. We read in that passage, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the incarnation is a big-sounding idea, but it's basically the idea that God was born as a man. God in the form of a man. Now, the incarnation, it's important that you don't mix them up with carnation, evaporated milk. That is not the incarnation. It's also important that you don't mix it up with Yosemite Sam saying, what in tar nation? If you look at Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
and call it carnation or intarnation, you will be publicly shamed. It is incarnation. That's an important idea that you remember. But what exactly does incarnation mean? It sounds like a big theological sounding word. It doesn't really sound very practical. Well, the New Testament gives several other passages explaining a little bit about what the incarnation really means. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the book of Philippians, Paul would write that equality with God was not something that Jesus grasped after. When he came in the form of man, he gave up many of the privileges that he had as the Son of God. He got sick the way we do. He got tired the way we do. He got frustrated the way we sometimes do. He laughed. He cried. He got sunburnt the way we sometimes do. Jesus was fully human. And Paul seems to stress that in that passage. Okay, sounds good. But then look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, another passage written by Paul. We read in that passage, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we have two different passages, both written by the same guy, a guy who probably has a pretty good understanding of Jesus. After all, he wrote most of the New Testament. But what does it mean? One passage, he seems to stress that Jesus was fully human. The next passage, he seems to stress that Jesus was fully God. You can't be both, right? Doesn't make sense. You've got to be 50-50 or 75-25 or something like that. Well, if you don't understand it, if you're confused by it, if you think it doesn't make sense, take heart because you're not alone. In the first 500 years of the early church, this was by far the biggest debate amongst all of the church leaders. How do we understand this idea of God becoming man? Was he more human than he was God or was he more God than he was human? How does this make sense? Well, they eventually came to a conclusion. In Chalcedon, in the year 451, a letter by a guy named Leo I said this, Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. And there's no problem between these two positions. That pretty much settled it. From that point forward, people said, all right, it's not 50-50. It's not 75-25. He's fully God. He's fully man. Does it make sense to us? Maybe not. But it's God we're talking about here. And if this is how God wants to do things, then this is how God is going to do things. Jesus is 100% God. Yet he is also 100% man. And there is no problem with this idea. One of the best ways and one of the most humbling things to look about with Jesus's humanity is seen in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We read in that passage, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with the things that you often face every single day. He's not some distant God who has no idea what we're going through. He knows exactly what we're going through. And in the times that we fail, when we fall short, when we give in to temptation, we look to a God not only who knows what we're going through, but we look to a God who succeeded where we fail. When we give in to our temptation, Jesus doesn't. When Adam and Eve gave in to temptation, Jesus doesn't. Jesus truly is victory. He never sinned. He was perfect and thus became the perfect sacrifice. But even though he's perfect, it doesn't mean that he has no clue what we're going through. It doesn't mean that he's completely removed. He knows exactly what you're dealing with. Now, this is a big theological idea, the incarnation. It sounds weighty and it sounds like it's over a lot of our heads and it's something that a bunch of theologians up in an ivory tower should be debating but what does it mean for us what does it mean for you and for me in your everyday life in your workplace in your school in your neighborhood all these places well i think the incarnation has a lot to say about those things because i think it changes the way we treat people it changes the way we do ministry people Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 29. We see this famous story about Jesus calling Levi. And Levi has a party at his house and invites all of his buddies to the house. Verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees don't like the idea that a respected and well-regarded religious teacher would be hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They don't like the idea that he would ever be in their presence. Doesn't that soil him? Doesn't that make him somehow unholy being around these horrible people? Well, Jesus doesn't seem to think so. In fact, as you look throughout Jesus's ministry, when people who were sick, when people who were broken, when people who had leprosy came to Jesus, he didn't minister to them at arm's length. He didn't write a check and then hope the problem went away without having to really get involved in it. He reached out and he touched them. He embraced them. He hugged them. He put an arm around them. He held their hand as they're lying in bed and helped them get up. The incarnation changes the way we do ministry. It challenges us to get our hands dirty. It challenges us to reach out to people who others might not want to reach out to. It challenges us to love people that others consider unlovable. That's what the incarnation means to us. That's how we do ministry in an incarnational way. We don't keep the people who need Christ at arm's length. We don't isolate ourselves from them. Instead, we reach out and we embrace them. We treat them like brothers and sisters. We treat them like people. 
People created in the image of God. I pray that every single one of us, we can look in our neighborhoods, we can look in our workplaces, we can look in our schools, and we can find the people who need Christ. Find the people who are hurting. Find the people who are lonely. Find the people who are messed up. And reach out to them. And treat them the way Christ treated these tax collectors. And treated these sinners. It doesn't mean that we never acknowledge sin. But it means that we love people in spite of sin. No matter what. That's the idea. I pray that we can become those kind of people. That we can be incarnational people. That go out and seek those folks the same way Christ came and sought us. God sent a Savior. He has come for us, this Jesus. I pray that we can reach out to those people. And like John the Baptist, point their eyes to Christ. And like Jesus, embrace them. Don't keep them at arm's length. Wayne Grudem, a famous theologian, writes this about the Incarnation. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, that's a fancy word for all-powerful, eternal Son of God, could become man and join himself to a human nature forever. So the infinite man became, infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Grudem's right. It's truly unbelievable. It's hard to wrap our minds around it. The men in the early church couldn't wrap their minds around it. And that's okay. But here's the thing. As great as the incarnation is, as amazing as Jesus' life is, as sinless as he was, as much as that challenges the way that we do ministry, the story doesn't end with Jesus' life. It goes farther. The same way that Jesus lived a human life, Jesus would die a human death. In fact, he would die a brutal human death, an embarrassing human death, a shameful human death. But he did it for you, and he did it for me. He did more than just reach out and embrace people. He did even more than just reach out and touch them when nobody else would. He went to a cross for them. I pray that in the coming days, as we think about Christmas, we won't just think about a birth. We won't just think about a life. We'll think about the death that this baby came to die for you and for me. And I pray that we can be sacrificial for those around us. That we can be more like Christ for those around us. Putting other people first. Pointing their eyes towards him. And reaching out and embracing the broken. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled and we are honored that you came for us. God, we have nothing to offer you. We didn't do anything to deserve this, anything to earn this. You were in no way obligated to send your son to die for us, but you did. God, we thank you for that. We rejoice in the grace and the mercy that you show. We rejoice in the fact that even though we have faces that only a mother could love, you sent your son to die for us. I pray that we'll keep that in mind this Christmas. 
as we focus too much at times on the distractions, on the parties, on the shopping, I pray that we'll remember the birth. But not only that, we'll look forward to what that life eventually led to. It led to a cross. It led to a sacrifice. A perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. Sacrifice that we could never pay on our own. God, we are grateful for that. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't yet know Christ as Savior, feel free to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. If you have questions about our church, if you have things that you would like to pray about, they'd be happy to talk to you about that as well.